Welcome to the AVA Journal Legal Rebels podcast, where we talk to men and women who are remaking the legal profession, changing the way the law is practiced, and setting standards that will guide us into the future. There are plenty of judicial analytics and litigation prediction tools on the market. They may have differences in execution and focus, but the general rule of thumb is that they look at a judge's past rulings and opinions to predict how that judge might rule on a similar motion or case in the future. For instance, you can look up how Judge so-and-so ruled on prior motions to dismiss on certain employment discrimination cases to get an idea how they might rule on a similar one currently pending in their courtroom. That knowledge can be important for lawyers. Not only does it let them evaluate their case, and determine whether it's worthwhile to go to trial or settle, they can also provide the client with some certainty as to how much it might cost them based on what they've charged in the past for similar matters. But then litigation analytics tool Predicta launched in 2022 with a different approach. In addition to looking at the rulings and jurisprudence, Predicta also examines a judge's political affiliation, net worth, area of residence, career, and other personal and demographic data. My name is Victor Lee, and I'm Assistant Managing Editor of the ABA Journal. Joining me on today's episode of the ABA Journal Legal Rebels podcast is Dan Rabinowitz, CEO and co-founder of Predicta. He's here to talk about what sets Predicta apart from its competitors, as well as discuss the field of judicial analytics and where it's heading. Welcome to the show, Dan. Thank you for having me. So uh, tell me a little, bit, a little bit about yourself and your background. What made you decide to become a lawyer? What made me decide to become a lawyer? Oh, that's, a, that, that's a tough one. Uh, it's a... Uh... <laughs> I uh, always was fascinated by the idea of uh, argument and uh, just uh, going through the debate process and uh, also fascinated by um, history. Um, and much of at least what, what I did when I was a litigator, uh, while it's not you know history in terms of uh, you know a, a particular country, it's really looking at at the history of what the judges or or judge has, has discussed in the past what what reasons and rationales that they've articulated, and how you might craft them and frame them uh, for the current context. Gotcha. Well, look, any any answer is better than I saw it on TV and thought it'd be cool to do, right? <laughs> yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the field of litigation analytics. So how would you describe it for someone who might not have much understanding of what it is, what it does, and what it doesn't do? Sure. So judicial analytics, at least the way that I think about it, is the ability to look at uh, data specific to the judge, but not limited to their opinions. Judges write very, very few opinions uh, as compared to the number of cases and motions that, that actually come uh, before them. So there are other data points that, that you can use in order to assess and attempt to predict what the judge will do in the future. And then when it comes to analytics, at least the way that it's currently used in the commercial space, setting aside the uh, law for a moment, it's generally a focus on the use of big data, which then typically implicates machine learning. And then finally, some sort of uh, algorithmic or uh, AI-based um, uh, functionality. Gotcha. So, I mean, these tools have been around for a little bit now. Um, how widespread would you say these tools are within the legal industry? Like, is there is there a lot of adoption or do you think there's still some resistance to it? So I, I think that we have to break out the uh, different tools. So there's uh, some types of tools that are research-based, that that are designed to provide either more targeted arg arguments or getting to particular uh, arguments quicker. So those are, for example, the ones that look at context or look at um, language that the judge has employed in the past and try to identify those or, or identify patterns that, that might make research easier or more pointed or more convincing for, for the judge. So that's 
research analytics, and most of the major platforms have some form of that. Um, and you know, I, I imagine that that attorneys are are using those to some degree. The other type of analytics is the judge analytics, and those are different in, in the sense that most of those, at least not ours, are statistically or or use uh, statistics in order to tease out judicial uh, ruling patterns. Those are what I've seen while they, they have been adopted by many firms. At the same time, in terms of their adoption within the firm, it's generally fairly limited. Sometimes that sits within legal ops or within what was the traditionally like the uh, librarian function. Um, and then there are a handful, if you're talking about a large firm of, uh, of attorneys that, that uh, will use those tools themselves. I think again, most of those you know are looking at numbers. They're they're looking at percentages. For the example that uh, you gave at at the beginning, you know you're looking at employment cases and the percentage of time that a judge has granted that. So that ultimately is very different than what attorneys spend their days doing, which is you know parsing language, doing fact investigation, and generally not dealing with numbers. I mean, we we had a, a, a course in law school accounting for lawyers, which, you know, is is minimally different than accounting for dummies, which I was pretty much the <laughs> intent there. And lawyers generally want to stay away from numbers. So that's why I think while there is general adoption, when you try to get uh, to the individual level, there's still uh, large portions of the legal profession that are that are not necessarily using those judicial analytics tools on a daily basis. I took accounting for lawyers when I was in law school, and I, I even thought that was a little too advanced for me. I probably could have used the dummies class. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, like when, when I talk about accrual, I was just like, okay, I don't even understand this. But um, but let me ask you. So, um, do you think part of the reason why lawyers might be or lawyers might not might not be willing to embrace at least the judicial uh, analytics tools is that they're worried about you know they might rely on them to make an important decision regarding strategy or billing or budgeting or whatever and then get bit when the judge surprises them like do you think that that might be part of it the idea of like the lawyers just not really not want not wanting to take that chance or be the first one kind of like to you know the kind of like the first one through the first one through the glass gets the gets the cuts kind of thing like do you think that that's kind of that's kind of what's going on i certainly think that that that's part of it and there's a very good reason for that hesitancy if you're only using past performance if you're only looking at the stats of what a judge has done in the past, that is really a poor indicator of what the judge is going to do in the future. So really to place uh, any sort of reliance on that in terms of budgeting, in terms of assessing likelihood of success. I mean, the if you think about the, the uh, process of litigation and what people and, and the parties and the lawyers and how much those factors influence the, the outcome, simply looking at what a judge has done you know, uh, previously, it is it is not really going to give you a lot of comfort when you're going to your client and you're saying, well, this is going to cost five million or twelve million, they're, they're, and you're relying on what the judge did in the past. That that's a really, really big leap. Um, and the the and as I said, the 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 main reason for that though is because of the limitations of the current system. So, because in the employment again, just to go back to to your example, in in the employment case where where you're looking at a judge's rulings on a motion to dismiss, let's say in employment cases, if most of those employment cases were involved single plaintiffs against very small companies with regional counsel, that's very different when you have a massive class action for a Fortune 500 company with large law firms on either side. So to extrapolate from that data it is, it is, is not gonna really provide a, an effective uh, prediction. Gotcha. 
Well, we'll talk a little bit more about your approach to the field of judicial analytics, but before we continue, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. So let's talk specifically about Predicta. So you talked a little bit about it uh, before the break, but what was it about other products in the market that let you decide to take a different approach? Well, I think it comes down to the uh, two aspects that we were going back to before. That is first numbers. So numbers, again, lawyers generally dislike working with them. And the other platforms provide a lot of numbers. Uh, they provide you know, many statistics about various aspects of cases, whether it be motions, whether it be settlement, whether it be damages, but it's still numbers. And then the second limitation of, of the other platforms is simply that they do not provide a prediction. They do not claim to. And in fact, there is no way using those high level numbers that, that they could provide an, an accurate prediction. So limiting yourselves to this, just the historic uh, statistics doesn't really get you very far. And when it comes to predictive technology outside of the legal profession, we have gotten very, very far. We are able to predict with a high degree of accuracy many aspects of daily life. Uh, many repeatable tasks can be predicted with certainty. Um, if you just think about the way that Google treats us and you end up getting those ads that are eerily like creepy that they were potentially listening in um, and you start getting an ad about a vacation that you've only begin that you've only thought about, the reason that they're able to do that targeted advertising is is probably not because they're listening in, but it's probably because there's a combination of two elements that that they're looking at. One is your historic buying pattern. What have you done in the past? When have you taken a vacation? Where have you gone? And then the second piece is who you are. So Google knows you know, where we live, who our neighbors are, where we went to school, what profession we are. And the combination of both of those uh, elements allows Google to provide highly targeted predictive ads. And I thought that the same approach could be applied to the law, simply the the judge is the equivalent of the um, uh, person looking to to buy something. And if we can predict what the judge will buy, why can't we predict how the judge is going to rule? So um, my question is, uh, so why, so like when you focus on uh, this kind of information, like, you know, personal information, demographic information, political affiliation and stuff like that, have you found that it makes a difference in how, like, like when, you, when you put that stuff in as opposed to if you, take, if you leave that stuff out? Have you found that it makes a difference in, in, in being able to predict which way a judge will rule or is it or is it just a matter of degrees? No. So you have to approach that carefully. If you're just going to look at three or four data points, then it's not very helpful. It's, you know, to simply say because the judge is, you know, a, a Democrat or appointed by a Democrat or a Republican. And consequently, you're able to say with certainty they're going to rule in, in favor or against a, a corporate or in favor of corporate interests. That does the, the data doesn't bear that out. And the reason is, is because that's very reductive. We are not simply the product of our, our political views, uh, you know, where we went to school and, and, and those limited data points. Instead, if you wanna do Google, you have to know much, much more about a person. You can't simply say, well, I know one thing and therefore I know everything else. You really have to understand that human beings are highly complex people or, or beings and that you have to account for that complexity. And looking at multiple data points, dozens of data points, and some of them seemingly have no relationship to a, a, um, a decision. So like net, net worth or which stocks a person owns, why would that necessarily affect you know, how, how a judge rules? So it's, it's correct. Standing alone, it doesn't. But the beauty of big data is that you're able to take large amounts of data that seemingly 
have no relationship to the task at hand, ha using machine learning to process it, and then AI to understand non-obvious patterns, you can then arrive at a highly accurate prediction. But just looking at political affiliation or something else, that doesn't get you where if you're looking to actually predict something. Okay. I guess one thing that not, not puzzles me, but I guess kind of intrigues me about this and, 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 and one of the reasons why I want to talk to you about this is, so, I mean, if you're looking at all these data points, these things that maybe don't necessarily have anything to do with the actual written law or the precedence or the jurisprudence or whatnot. So then how do you balance that within what the law says or what the opinions say or what the case law says or whatnot? I mean, because ultimately, yeah, I mean, judges are, like you said, a product of many, many different, many, many, many different data points, many, many different experiences, many different, you know, parts of their life and whatnot. But, you know, but at the end of the day, they're still supposed to be judges. They're still supposed to like weigh, weigh precedent in a, in a certain way. They're supposed to like have some, some sort of respect for stare decisis and whatnot or what the law says or whatnot. I mean, so how do you kind of balance those two or you know, more than two kind of kind of kind of factors. So we are entirely uninterested in precedent, stare decisis, the latest legal theories, or what the judge did, or what they wrote in their opinion yesterday, or even which law is applicable. Instead, we are looking at other factors that are more influential in terms of creating a prediction. And those factors are who the parties are and who the attorneys are, because that's ultimately what a case hinges on. It hinges on whether or not it's a large party, a small party, who the attorneys that are representing each one, because that's ultimately what really influences a judge's decision. Every, everyone's going to write, you know, they're going to make arguments uh, about the law. But what changes it or what potentially affects a decision is who is in front of the judge. Does a judge favor single plaintiffs against large corporation or or is more skeptical of those doesn't matter if if the lawyer went to harvard does the judge view them as an elitist or views them as someone more competent than counsel on the other side so we have found those factors are the most important ones in terms of creating a prediction so our system or, or our technology works simply by entering the case number we do not ingest briefs we do not look at the law we do not look at the facts. You don't have to upload a memo. It simply requires putting in the case number. And then based on the algorithmic models that we've built, we then predict with an almost 85% degree of accuracy how the judge will rule in that particular case. And, and this might be kind of a like a yes, Virginia, you know, is, is there a Santa Claus kind of thing for me? But like, you know, have you have you gotten any kind of pushback or kind of you know, any kind of criticism for that approach? Because obviously, you know, like, I mean, you know, for those of us, maybe that may, might be more on the, you know, oh, judges are supposed to do this, judges are supposed to do that and kind of remove their personal, their personal biases and, 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 and leanings and that kind of stuff from from the equation. Like, have you gotten any kind of pushback from people like that who are, who are kind of like, well, that's not what, that's not what jurisprudence is, or that's not what, that's not what judges are supposed to do and, and, and stuff like that? We've elected to approach the judicial system by putting human beings at, at the top of it. And human beings come to highly different decisions. And there's nothing wrong or right with that. But that's the system that we're in. You can put the exact same set of facts, the exact same law in front of two people, and they will come out into, and they will arrive at entirely opposite opinions. That doesn't mean that one is right or one is wrong. It's simply uh, the, the reality of humans and that we all think and act differently. That doesn't make us bad people. That's simply who humans are. We, we are highly, again, we're highly complex uh, beings that approach things differently and different things influence everyone differently. Interesting. All right. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, but first, let's take another uh, commercial break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. 
So let's talk generally about the judiciary. Have you felt like things have become more polarized and more political in this time? And is that one of the reasons why you decided to go in this direction with Predicta? Actually, I take a slightly different approach to the uh, current state of things. Uh, while it is certainly true that some decisions might be driven by particular politics, the day-to-day, I, I don't believe, is actually driven by politics or those things. Instead, if you think about, sure, like abortion, probably politics, or at the very least, we, we can assign uh, particular approaches to pr- particular political affiliations. But that's not the majority of what most lawyers handle. Most lawyers do not go before the Supreme Court about abortion. Most lawyers spend most of their time on commercial matters, on torts, on other, you know, if you will, day-to-day life. And that is not something that politics necessarily enters, or at least that certainly isn't the only factor that we can ascribe a particular decision to. So there, there's certainly a lot of political uh, polarization. I'm not a social, you know, uh, historian or, or anything else, so I, I really can't give a deep answer on you know, what that is and, and why. But as it relates to the, the judiciary, and once you remove some of the the more uh, well-known cases, if you just think about everything a judge does every day, like how many cases are coming before her, and even just looking at the civil cases and their docket, most of those are not cases that we would think that politics really enters the picture. Now, at the same time, while it doesn't necessarily enter the picture, that, of course, is a part of who they are, So we can't ignore that, but I don't believe that those decisions can be reduced to simply politics or or certainly uh, polarization. Gotcha. And this is just just out of my curiosity. Have you found like a difference as far as like elected judges versus appointed judges? Like, have you noticed like any kind of like, are are elected judges more likely to be influenced by certain factors versus like federal judges, appointed judges, or is that not really borne out by the data? So the difference between appointed and elected judges is only something that we've begun to start analyzing. We recently acquired a a company and the purpose of which was to obtain um, large amounts of state court data, state uh, judicial data. When we initially launched uh, last year, we we were wholly focused on on the federal courts. And with that, you know, with the acquisition, now we we also are turning our attention to the state courts. Now, I can't necessarily, you know, uh, provide now whether or not there, there, there is a distinction between the two. But just to give you an example of something that we have analyzed, so we have looked at, to go back to the political question, you know, political presidential um, appointments and whether or not we can discern any pro or anti-business bias. And when you go through that exercise, um, what is actually borne out by the data, I think, is somewhat surprising to at least uh, some people. And that is, so if we go ahead and look at not just political appointment, but also gender, and we throw that into the mix, So women that were appointed by President Obama rule in favor of corporations at the same rate as Republicans overall, whereas women that were appointed by President Trump are the least favorable demographic when it comes to uh, corporations as parties. So yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't have guessed that. Yeah, right. And I understand like why we wouldn't guess that. But at the same time, if you start thinking about like a more nuanced view of these people who were being picked, where were they coming from, what law schools they were coming from, what what career they had prior to be appointed to the judiciary. Those are very different people Uh on the whole, right? They're sourced from different places. They've they've had a different career history and therefore it will be manifested in different ways. 
So each of those data points, you know, gender in, in this instance and political affiliation are incredibly important. But even going one level deeper where you can't just say it's a Democrat or a Republican, you also have to understand who the president was at that point to them. Because if you look at presidential appointments, even if they're Democrats or, or, or Republicans, who they decide to appoint and how they go through that selection process is very different. Who is in the White House counsel's office? right? Who was at, at the Department of Justice? Who was making those decisions? Who was creating the pools of judges to go ahead and, and look at? And each right. of those ultimately affect who goes on the bench. And then that will then manifest itself through their decisions. If you decide to look at them, not singularly, let's say just about abortion, but you're trying to look at a much, a much more significant pattern, like anti-business or pro-business, then I think it yields very different results than what our assumptions might be, but not what our our analysis would be if we actually took the time to sit down and run through the data. That's fascinating. So how do you know that you're accurate with your predictions? I mean, you, I think you mentioned 85% earlier. How, how, how do you know that? Yeah. So what we wanted to do before we rolled this out was to make sure that, that we weren't selling a product that, that didn't provide a high degree of comfort to our um, clients. And the way that, therefore, we, we analyzed um, our predictive capability was we left out of our uh, data set. Um, so when we were building our models, you know, we ingested massive amounts of data from around 20 years of uh, federal court history and, and uh, judges. Um, but we excluded around 50,000 or so uh, cases and motions. So they were not included in the model. They, and what we then did, because the model hadn't seen those, so it's essentially looking at those blind, we then ran those cases through our system, looked at the output, and then compared that to the real world outcome of those cases. And over 50,000 motions, we, as, as I said, we were correct nearly 85% of the time. And again, the only information that was fed to the system was the case number, and nothing beyond that. They say 85%. Obviously, nothing's going to be 100%. But like, was there a certain thing that like, you know, maybe caused the prediction model to not be as, as accurate? Like, was there a certain type of case or a certain type of law or a certain type of motion? So generally, no. There is one exception to that, and that is newly appointed judges. So newly appointed uh, judges, of course, you don't have the historic data. However, because our approach uses both historic data as well as the, the personal attributes, what we do with new, newly appointed judges well, we can't match their their history, we can match their biography with sitting judges. And that enables us to use those sitting judges as proxies for what that judge will do throughout their career. And in that particular category, we lose a small percentage, so it, it knocks us down to around 81%. But overall, not a very significant loss because of the two-pronged approach and, and, and the approach that to build predictive models, you have to know more than just what the judge did in the past. So what's next for you guys? Like, what are you working on that you can talk about here? Sure. So the uh, most near term is, as I said, we are um, applying our philosophy, our, our approach to uh, judicial predictions, moving from federal court into state courts. We have uh, substantial coverage across the United States and all the major jurisdictions. And we're currently working with the data set that, 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 uh, that we acquired, as well as creating our judicial um, biographies and the profiles that we set up for, for every judge. And, and that's the near term that I think that I would be most comfortable talking about now. And we certainly have other projects in the pipeline. We, we focus right now on motions to dismiss. There are a whole host of other motions that we're working on uh, building predictive models for, uh, but that's a little bit uh, further down the road. Gotcha. 
and just talking about judicial analytics in in general, do you think they'll become more widespread uh, amongst lawyers in the field uh, in the immediate future? And I guess why or why not? Yeah, so I think that again, that we we have to distinguish which type of judicial analytics we're we're we are talking about. Yeah. The predictive analytics, sorry. Right. Yeah. So if we're just talking about like more sophisticated statistics or more statistics about um, particular uh, aspects of cases, then I think there will always be the the barrier of entry that, you know, law is not a numbers game. But to the extent that we're talking about actually creating predictive models, whether it be in terms of predicting what a judge would do or creating models that would enable us to, to better estimate uh, e-discovery costs or time for that, or uh, other elements like that, where, where we're actually bringing in the predictive element, that is, you are outsourcing all the statistics, you're outsourcing all the data science to someone other than a lawyer or a law librarian. We should leave that to the experts, which is which is what we do. We use our experts and our expertise in order to provide that prediction. So, so long as the judicial analytics moves to providing answers rather than numbers, then there's no doubt it, it, it will see greater adoption. It's just a question of then deciding where to turn one's attention to. But certainly, if you think about the way that uh, analytics is used outside of the law, there isn't a major corporation that doesn't have a data analytics function within it. And while the CEO is not going through the numbers, what they are doing is th they're getting a report about where they see the market going or where they're or, or where they need to deploy assets through that analytic function. And it has to be that if lawyers are representing those clients, lawyers can't be ignoring the technology that all of their clients have adopted to make major decisions on a day-to-day -day basis. Gotcha. And finally, if our listeners want to reach out to you uh, and ask you about you know, Predicta or, or prediction analytics in general, what's the best way to do that? Uh, they can either go to the website and, and um, request a demo or I'm happy if, if they would contact me directly, uh, dan at pre-dicta.com. Great. Thanks for joining us today, Dan. I really appreciate it. No, oh, thank you for taking the time. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear more, please go to your favorite app and check out some other titles from Legal Talk Network. In the meantime, I'm Victor Lee, and I'll see you next time on the APA Journal Legal Rebels podcast. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalRebels.com, LegalTalkNetwork.com, Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find both the ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download the free apps from ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.